The Meeting of Christ in the Temple From the Feast of the Lord, an Introduction to the Twelve Feasts of Christ and of Orthodox Christology by Metropolitan of Nafpaktos Hirotheus Published by Bertha the Theotokos Monastery, Lavadia, Greece Translated into English by Esther Williams The Meeting of Christ Forty days after his birth in the flesh, Christ was presented at the temple in accordance with legal convention. And because there in the temple he was received by persons moved by the Spirit, and especially because Simeon took him into his arms, this feast is also called a meeting. The church appointed this great feast of the Lord and the Mother of God to be celebrated on the 2nd of February because it is the 40th day after the 25th of December when the Nativity of Christ in the flesh is celebrated. In this way, the year is divided by the turning points in the divine economy and blesses them. At the same time, it makes it possible for man to be initiated into the great mystery of the incarnation of the Son and Word of God. The event of the presentation of Christ in the temple on the 40th day after his birth is described only in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 39. 1. God himself, that is to say, the unincarnate word of God, gave the commandment of purification on the fortieth day to Moses, and it had been established for all the Israelites. This commandment was given to Moses even before the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, before they crossed the Red Sea. The commandment is as follows, quote, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb, among the children of Israel, both of man and of animal, it is mine. Exodus 13, 1-2. This offering also referred to the firstborn male animals, which had to be separated and offered to God. God's commandment was clear, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstling that comes from an animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. Exodus 13, verse 12. This offering was a sign of recognition of God's beneficence and showed that they belonged to him. It is well known that the commandment to dedicate the firstborn male child was given to the people of Israel through Moses directly after the killing of the firstborn children of the Egyptians, when Pharaoh at once gave permission for the exodus before they crossed the Red Sea. The explanation of this act is characteristic, quote, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. End quote. Exodus 13.9 In another book of the Old Testament, Leviticus, we see that God gives more details about the ceremony of consecration and thanksgiving. The woman who bears a male child is to circumcise him on the eighth day and offer him to the temple on the fortieth day. And with the offering of the child, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a burnt offering. Leviticus 12, 1-6. Since the Logos, the word of God himself, gave the law to Moses, when he assumed human flesh, he had to keep the law so as not to be a lawbreaker. St. Cyril of Alexandria says that when anyone sees Christ keeping the law, he should not be shocked, nor should he regard as a servant him who is free, but he should have a better understanding of the depth of the economy. This keeping of the law, 
of the offering in the temple is part of the mystery of the divine kenosis and self-emptying of the Son and Word of God. Likewise, according to St. Gregory Palamas, Christ had no need of purification, but since ritual purification was legislated in the Old Testament for both the parents and the children, he did it in order to obey the law which he himself had given. Christ had no need of ritual purification because he was conceived without seed and given birth without loss of virginity. There was certainly no need for purification, but it was an act of obedience. This obedience had the meaning of obedience to the law of God, but also of obedience of the new Adam in contrast to the disobedience of the old Adam. And if the disobedience of the first Adam resulted in the fall and corruption, the obedience of the new Adam, Christ, brought disobedient human nature back to God and cured man of responsibility for the disobedience. 2. The bringing of the children to the temple on the 40th day was a feast of purification. The mother and child had to be cleansed of the results of the birth. Certainly, the birth of children is a blessing of God, but it must be realized that the manner in which man gives birth is a fruit and result of the fall. It is the so-called coats of skin which Adam wore after the fall and the loss of God's grace. It is in this light that we should see the words, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sins did my mother conceive me. From Psalm 50. Eventually, by dispensation, God blessed this way in which man is born, but nevertheless it is the fruit of the fall. Parents, as well as children, should bear this in mind. The ceremony of purification should be interpreted in this theological framework. When we reflect on these theological truths, we can see that neither Christ nor the Panagia had need of purification. Conception without seed and birth without loss of virginity do not constitute impurity. The commandment which God gave to Moses said, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she, she shall be unclean seven days. Leviticus 12.2 This passage shows the purity of the Panagia at once, because the woman is unclean who is to give birth when she has been fertilized by a man. Panagia, however, conceived by the Holy Spirit and not germinally, and therefore she was not unclean. This means that it did not apply in her case, but she went to the temple in order to keep the law. 3. God's commandment was clear. Sanctify to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb. Exodus 13.2 this commandment is at the same time a prophecy, which refers to the incarnation of the Son and Word of God. It does not relate absolutely to every firstborn male, for no man, not even the firstborn, opens his mother's womb. In his homily on this subject, Athanasios the Great says that infants do not open their mother's wombs, but the man coming together with the woman. The womb opens at the coming together of the couple, and the conception of the child. But Christ opened his mother without destroying her virginity, since he left her closed again. Quote, when nothing had knocked from outside, this infant opened from within. End quote. After mentioning that what was done in the Old Testament was a type of the nativity of Christ, Nicodemus the Hagiorite says that Christ alone opened the virgin's womb, 
quote, in a way worthy of God and beyond comprehension, for having opened her in being born, he left her closed again, just as she was before the conception and birth. Christ is the firstborn and is characterized as such in Holy Scripture. This characterization certainly does not mean that there is also a secondborn and a thirdborn, but that he was born first, regardless of whether there was a second or third. The term firstborn must be associated with the only begotten, as Christ is also characterized in Holy Scripture. The term firstborn also refers to the two births of Christ, that is to say, to the pre-eternal birth from a virgin father without a mother, and the birth in time from a virgin mother without a father, St. Gregory Palamas. Christ is called firstborn in three ways. First, because he was born of the Father before all ages. The Apostle Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1.15. And as we saw before, the firstborn is identified with the only begotten. Secondly, he is called firstborn in his human birth, and regardless of whether another was born of the Panagia, and she brought forth her firstborn son, Luke 2.7. And thirdly, he is called firstborn from the dead because he was the first to rise from the dead, thus making it possible for everyone to be raised at the appropriate time. The resurrection is also characterized as a birth because resurrection is regarded as a birth. The Apostle Paul says, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Colossians 1.18 The first meaning of the firstborn is connected with the birth according to nature of the Son of God. That is to say, the term refers to theology. And the other two are connected with the incarnation of the word and refer to the economy. According to St. Gregory of Nyssa, Christ became firstborn in three ways in order to give life to our own human nature. Of course, he's not referring to birth from the Father before all ages. Just as our own human nature is given life, by three births, that from our mother, that from holy baptism, and that from the dead, which we hope will happen in the future. So too Christ became the firstborn for us in three ways, so that our own human nature would be given life and therefore deified. For the birth of the body still has to be followed by the spiritual birth. Four. It is a moving scene when Christ as an infant, as a baby, is offered to the temple. The pre-eternal God, who, as the Word of God, has always been united with his Father and the Holy Spirit, and simultaneously has directed the whole world, the entire universe, is presented to the temple as an infant in the arms of his mother. Although Christ was an infant, at the same time he was God before the ages, and therefore he was wiser than anyone else. We know that human nature in the womb of the Theotokos was deified by the union of divine and human nature in the person of the Word, and therefore Christ's soul was enriched with the fullness of wisdom and knowledge. Yet this wisdom was expressed in accordance with his age, because if it had been otherwise, he would have appeared to be a freak, St. John of Damascus. Anyway, although Christ was an infant, nevertheless he was God, having all the fullness of divinity bodily 
and all the human wisdom and knowledge by virtue of the hypostatic union of his divine and human natures. By means of this infancy, he cured Adam's infantile mind. When God formed Adam in paradise, Adam was an infant as to grace and sanctification. He did have an illumined noose, but he had to be tested and attain deification. Since he was unshaped and an infant in spirit because he had an infantile mind, he was easily deceived by the evil demon, who awakened him to sin and evil. Therefore Christ, having the bodily age of an infant, cured not only Adam's infantile mind, but also his human nature, and did what the first Adam failed to do. Thus, by the incarnation of his Son, God the Father made the deification of man more sure and more effective. In Christ, the devil could no longer deceive human nature, as he had done with ease in the first Adam. The kenosis, or self-humbling, or emptying, of the Son and Word of God, as is also seen in the case of his offering to the temple, exceeded even the angels' understanding, for they too were astonished at God's immense condescension. The prophet Habakkuk prophesies the incarnation of the Word of God. Quote, God is coming from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Faran. His majesty covers the heavens and his glory fills the earth. Habakkuk 3.3 The word here for glory means the incarnation and the divine kenosis of the word of God. Covered the heavens means that it covered, blanketed even the height of the angels, since even the angels were astonished on seeing the immense and inexpressible condescension of the word of God. 5. God had appointed that the offering of the firstborn male should be accompanied by the offering of an unblemished lamb or a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In Leviticus it says, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Leviticus 12.6 Luke the evangelist says that Christ's parents brought him to the temple to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, Luke 2.24. Christ's parents did not offer a lamb as the law provided, because they were poor. The wealthy classes offered a year-old lamb, while the poorer classes offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Procopius source. Christ really was born into a poor family and grew up as a poor man. In the end, Christ's poverty consisted not so much in the fact that he was born and lived in poverty, but rather that he became incarnate and assumed human nature. As St. Gregory the Theologian says, while he was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich with his divinity. The law provided that a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons be offered, because the turtle doves signify the wisdom of the parents who were joined together according to the law of marriage, while the two young pigeons referred to the Panagia and Christ. Because Christ was born of the Virgin and remained virgin himself to the end. Thus, while the former signified the honorable and blessed marriage, the latter symbolized the virginity of the Panagia and of Christ. St. Gregory Palamas. The offering of the Lord, which the law provided, was a figure of Christ. 
As St. Cyril of Alexandria points out, the turtle dove is very loquacious among sparrows of the field, but the dove is gentle and meek. This symbolized Christ, for Christ babbled like a pigeon to all the world and filled his own vineyard, that is, us who believe in him with his sweet voice, and like a dove he was meek to the utmost degree. Clearly, then, this offering referred to the incarnation of the merciful God. 6. One of the most important and central persons in the meeting, apart, of course, from Christ and the Panagia, was Simeon, the righteous and devout, who was granted to welcome Christ, to take him in his arms, and to recognize him by the power and energy of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he is a great personality, both in that he saw Christ and in what he said at that moment. The name Simeon corresponds to his life and expectation, but also to God's revelation to him, because in the Hebrew language, the word Simeon is interpreted as obedience, St. Nikitas, or as whom the Lord heard, St. John Chrysostom. The evangelist Luke characterizes him as a man who lived in Jerusalem and was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. At the same time, he says that he had the Holy Spirit, and that he had been informed that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Luke 2.25-26 All these signs are characteristic of an inspired man. This is why Holy Scripture is not interested in man's origin and the elements of his human makeup, because he had another life, a life of the Spirit. St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite collected the views of interpreters as to who St. Simeon was. He did this because in the gospel there is no explicit reference to whether he was a priest or not, for he is called a man. Thus Joseph the hymnographer calls him a most holy hierigon, or one who discharges a sacred function. The holy martyr Methodius calls him an excellent priest. Saints Photius and Theophylactos say that he was not a priest, but higher than a priest. Others say that he was one of the 70 interpreters from the Septuagint in the Old Testament who was unbelieving when he interpreted the prophet Isaiah's prophecy, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. And just at that time he was informed that he would live until he received Christ in his arms. Some people maintain that he was a son of the Hebrew patriarch Hillel and the father of Gamaliel, the law teacher, and others that he was the president of the Sanhedrin of the Hebrews. It is also said that he was more than 270 years old. Commenting on these things, St. Nicodemus writes that all who wish safely to follow the gospel honor Simeon, the one who received God simply as a man moved by the Spirit. Actually, St. Simeon, the receiver of God, came to the sanctuary by the power and energy of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, he received the information that he would see Christ before he died. And through the Holy Spirit, he came to the sanctuary. Luke 2, 25 and following. This expresses the truth that one must have the Holy Spirit and be taught by it. The Holy Spirit does not reveal the mysteries to men who are unclean and did not have it previously. The prophet Isaiah prophesies 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Be strong, do not fear. Isaiah 35, 3-4 This happened above all to Simeon, the receiver of God, since as Luke the Evangelist says, he came into the sanctuary in the Spirit. Not only was he led by the Holy Spirit, but he was also strengthened by it. No one can see God if he does not have spiritual powers, if he is not strengthened by the power and energy of the All-Holy Spirit. In this way, then, the Holy Spirit strengthened his feet to go to the sanctuary and his hands as well to take hold of Christ. George of Nicodemia says that he did not use his own feet to approach the sacrament because the Holy Spirit became a chariot to him, which transported him. When righteous Simeon had come to the sanctuary, he recognized the Son and Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. At that time, he was granted to see the incarnation of the Word of God, which all the prophets had seen prophetically. As Basil the Great says, Simeon and Anna saw the divine power which was in Christ, quote, like a light, through glassy membranes, through the human body. Just as we see through the window the light that is in the house, or just as we see through glass lamps the light that is there, so also the pure in heart see through the body of Christ the light of divinity which is unknown and invisible to others. St. Athanasius the Great sang the praises of St. Simeon, the receiver of God, because he was moved by the Holy Spirit, and he was granted this great honor. He said that although Simeon was a man in appearance, he was more than a man in spiritual apprehension. In essence, he was a man, but superior in worth, far above his fellow men. A man by nature, but an angel in virtue. He had the visible Jerusalem as his dwelling, but he had the Jerusalem above as his metropolis. Not only was he higher than men, but Simeon was also superior to the angels. 7. Apart from St. Simeon, the receiver of God in the temple, there was also Anna, the prophetess, who was granted to recognize God and to proclaim that he was her redeemer. Anna was 84 years old and was widowed after having lived with her husband for seven years only. Luke 2, 36-40. Anna's characteristic feature was that she was in the temple night and day, keeping vigil, did not leave it. Thus, while Simeon was led to the temple by the Holy Spirit, she remained there, and in the Holy Spirit she recognized God. The evangelist Luke calls her a prophetess because she had the Holy Spirit. St. Cosmas, the hymnographer, says that Holy An with reverence confessed. But there is a difference between a prophet and an interpreter, according to St. Nicodemus the Hagurite. The prophet announces what is going to happen sometime later, while the interpreter explains the present or past, or else things are about to happen in a short time. It appears that the evangelist Luke uses the word prophet in the sense of interpreter, since it was through the Holy Spirit that Anna recognized the coming of the Word of God. Moreover, prophecy in the New Testament also has the meaning of interpretation in the Holy Spirit, of the deeper meaning of the law, and more generally, of Holy Scripture. Therefore, in the language of Holy Scripture, prophets are theologians who discern spirits. Anna's Alternative to confession is thanksgiving and praise to God for sending the redemption of Israel. Her action combines 
thanksgiving and proclamation because she spoke of him. Luke 2.38 8. The presence of righteous Simeon and the prophetess Anna manifests another reality as well, that they were the rational pair of turtle doves which received Christ when he went up to the temple. Thus, along with the irrational pair of turtle doves, the Holy Spirit also sent a spiritual and spirit-bearing pair of turtle doves, Simeon and Anna. According to St. Gregory Palamas, this shows what sort and how those should be who are going to receive Christ. Union with Christ presupposes an analogous life. Simeon was righteous, and it is not mentioned whether or not he had previously accepted married life, while Anna, after the death of her husband, was experiencing the blessing of widowhood, having a pure and immaculate life. Life in Christ is virginity like Christ's or God-given marriage, as St. Gregory Palamas says. In his homily on the Feast of the Circumcision, he makes a great reference to what evil is caused by prostitution and says that a man cannot have a relationship with Christ when he is committing adultery. It is necessary to crucify the flesh and its desires. Man's salvation does not depend on the kind of life that one chooses, whether marriage or virgin, but on the way of living, on the relationship that one has with Christ. And in the two cases, virginity and prudence are required. The sacramental and ascetical life point in this direction. The God-man Christ leads man to this way of life. 9. When righteous Simeon met the Panagia who was holding Christ, he took the divine infant into his arms. He took him up in his arms and blessed God. Luke 2.28 This scene is shattering. And this could not have happened if his arms had not been strengthened by the Holy Spirit. This scene reminds us of the vision of the prophet Isaiah, when the prophet saw him, quote, sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the seraphim round about him, and he confessed the uncleanness of his lips. The following thing happened astonishingly. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Isaiah 6, verses 6 to 7. This vision refers to the incarnation of the word of God. For the prophet Isaiah was called to proclaim to the Israelite people the coming of consolation, that is to say, the coming of Christ. And this is why he is regarded as the loftiest of the prophets in the fifth evangelist. He describes scenes of the divine incarnation with great clarity and accuracy. The fact that this vision is linked with the incarnation is shown by the interpretive tradition of the church. In a troparion of the Magnificat, of the feast, it says, quote, Mary, thou art the mystic tongs, who hast conceived in thy womb Christ the live coal. All the revelations in the Old Testament are revelations of the unincarnate word, in most of which it was manifesting his coming in the flesh. Thus here it is said that the coal is Christ. The mystical tongs which hold the coal is the Panagia, who was conceived 
conceived him in her womb. And the Panagia's hands, this live coal to the righteous Simeon. The heavenly altar is the glory of God, heaven. Therefore we sing, Simeon the priest received the Lord of all come down from heaven. Just as the prophet Isaiah received the live coal and did not burn, but was purified and became a prophet, so also the righteous Simeon received the live coal, Christ, from the Panagia and did not burn, but was purified according to the saying, Behold, he has touched your lips and pardons your transgressions and purifies your sins. This last sentence is an indication that the vision of the prophet Isaiah referred to the incarnation of the word of God. And this is seen from the fact that the church has defined that this is to be said by the celebrant priest after the holy partaking of the body and blood of Christ. This prophetic image associated with the righteous Simeon with reference to Holy Communion shows that in order for the holy partaking of the body and blood of Christ not to burn a person, he must have the Holy Spirit just as the righteous Simeon did. So the coal of fire is the incarnate Christ. The altar is the Panagia's womb. The Theotokos herself is the seraphim. The Panagia's hands are the mystical tongs which give the coal to the righteous Simeon. 10. No sooner had Simeon received Christ in his embrace than he exclaimed, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to light in the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Luke 2, 29-31 This is a magnificent expression which the church has taken over and placed at the end of the Vesper service as well as in other services such as the Thanksgiving after Holy Communion of the Holy Gifts. We shall undertake a brief interpreted analysis of these words. The righteous Simeon had been informed by the Holy Spirit that he would certainly see the incarnate word of God before he died. And this had been accomplished because he was favored with prophetic grace, St. Cyril of Alexandria. When he saw Christ, his soul sought release from his body. When it became clear that the saints regard the body as a restriction, St. Theophylactos, and therefore do not fear death. In peace according to thy word, indicates that he is looking for his soul's departure from his body because of the prophecy which he received, and he regards it as a rest, because in peace is equivalent to in rest, St. Theophylactos. The rest is also related to peace from thoughts, because as long as the days pass, righteous Simeon is waiting for it, always thinking about when he will come, St. Theophylactos. And of course, God's salvation is the incarnation which God was preparing before all ages. Actually, he was preparing the mystery of Christ even before the beginning of the world, St. Cyril of Alexandria. The incarnation of the Son and Word of God was also a light for the Gentiles, since the pagans, the idol worshippers, had gone astray, were in darkness, and had fallen into the hands of the demons, as well as the glory of Israel, because Christ arose and stemmed from the Israelites. So all who are grateful, they feel this. These words of St. Simeon are a triumphal hymn after the revelation to him of the incarnate Son and Word of God. The Old Testament prophets saw the back of God 
his coming, which would happen in the future, but he sees his face. Christ really is the light of the world, not the sensible and ethical light, not the symbolic, but the real light, which drives away the darkness of ignorance and of the noose, but is also a glory not only of the Israelites, but of human nature altogether. Without Christ and apart from him, human nature is inglorious, formless, vague, and anonymous. With Christ, it acquires form and definition. St. Nicholas Cavasilis. The fact that no sooner had St. Simeon seen the incarnate word of God than he sought release, death, is interpreted as the great joy over what he was to do next. He wanted to journey to Hades and make known the joyous news that the Messiah, the Redeemer of the world and of the righteous men of the Old Testament, who were in Hades, had come. Indeed, St. Athanasius the Great says that Simeon made haste to make the announcement so as to forestall the infants who were to be slaughtered by Herod. And he asks this because infants are nimble and mobile while he is old and slow and moves with difficulty. Christ satisfies his request because, as St. Athanasios the Great says, it seems that he told him to go and appear joyously to Adam, who was living dismally in Hades, and made the joy known to Eve in her pains, saying, quote, Redemption has come. The Savior has come. Forgiveness has come. The Deliverer has come. Human nature, weep no longer, for your Helper is coming and will not delay. Therefore, righteous Simeon was the first to announce to the prisoners in Hades, to all the righteous of the Old Testament who were in Hades, for death had not been abolished ontologically, that the Christ had, had come whom they awaited and that he would also come swiftly to Hades to release them. 11. Righteous Simeon blessed the Theotokos and Joseph, who followed these events with wonder and amazement. And he then turned to the Theotokos to make two remarkable prophecies to her. The first referred to the person of the God-man, Christ. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Luke 2.34 This prophecy was realized during Christ's lifetime, but it continues to be realized in the history of humanity and in the personal life of every man. The Theanthropos, God-man Christ, is the fall of those who do not believe in him and the rising of those who do. Golgotha is an example. One thief believes and is saved, the other doubts and is condemned. This happens also in our inner life. Christ falls. When we, the baptized, fall through prostitution and he is raised through our prudence. Likewise, it can be understood that Christ will suffer and fall in death, but also many will be raised through his own fall and his own death. St. Theophilactos. Christ is also a sign that is spoken against. The word sign can be understood in many ways and many senses. In the first place, Christ's incarnation, that the word of God became man, is a sign. At the incarnation, many paradoxical and strange things happened. God became man. The virgin became a mother. Precisely this sign is contradicted and doubted by many people. 
Some maintain that he assumed a real body, and others that his body and his actions were illusory. Some think that his body is earthly, others that it is heavenly. Some think that Christ as God has a pre-eternal existence, and others think that he received the source of his existence from the Virgin and Immaculate Mary. Analyzing St. Theophylactos' interpretation that the incarnation of the Son and Word of God is understood as a sign that is spoken against, St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite says that the heretic who sees the works of Christ, who has the double energies of man and God, and sometimes as man hungers, thirsts, is martyred, crucified, suffers, etc., sometimes as God performs miracles, drives out demons, and is resurrected, etc., is in two minds as to whether Christ is God or man. But the Christian does not have such doubts because he knows from the experience of the deified saints that although Christ had two natures, divine and human, he is one in hypostasis and personhood. And so one and the same Christ acts sometimes in a divine way and sometimes in a human way. And certainly when each nature acts, it acts in communion with the other. Another sign that is spoken against is the cross of Christ. According to St. Cyril of Alexandria, the precious cross is called a disputed sign. Some accept the Holy Cross and the crucifixion of Christ, regarding it as salvation, that in the cross he conquered the principles and authorities of darkness, and others deny the cross. They cannot accept that Christ was crucified. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul said, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But for us, the faithful, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. 12. St. Simeon's second prophecy, which referred to the Panagias as follows. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Luke 2.35 Apparently this prophecy refers to the pain and sorrow of the Theotokos about the cross, when she saw her son, who is the Son of God, at the same time suffering and enduring. Though the Panagia did not endure or suffer pain during the birth of Christ, precisely because she conceived him without seed and gave birth without corruption, she had to suffer very much at the time of his departure. This was the very sword that would pierce the soul of the Theotokos at Christ's death on the cross and would reveal the thoughts of many men which were hidden in their hearts. From the pain which she felt, they understood that this was his natural mother. This reminds us of the case of the two women in the Old Testament who claimed a baby and appeared before Solomon to resolve their difference. Solomon asked for a sword to divide it and give a part to each woman. Then one of them begged him not to kill it, but to give it whole to the other. And the other asked him to kill it, so that neither of them should take it. The king gave the child to the one who preferred that the child should live, even if the other woman took it. This was proof that she was the natural mother. 1 Kings 3, 16-28 In the same way, the Panagia's sorrow at the cross showed that she was the real mother, that it was from her that the Lord took flesh. For since the Panagia is the real mother, it means that Christ also had a real body and is not a fantasy. 
St. Athanasios the Great says that the phrase, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, means that the cross of Christ, his passion, would reveal all the inner dispositions of men, since Peter, out of warmth and zeal, would deny him, the disciples would desert him, Pilate would express regret by washing his hands, his wife would believe through a dream at night, the centurion would believe from the signs, Joseph and Nicodemus would be occupied with matters of the funeral, Judas would strangle himself, the Jews would give money to the guards to conceal the resurrection, and indeed there will be some conflict and discord of thoughts and opposing speculations. This prophecy does not refer only to the Incarnation and the Crucifixion, but also to the whole life of the Church, which is the real body of Christ. Some are saved, remaining in the Church. Others are condemned, denying its saving work. Also, since through holy baptism we have received the grace of God in our heart and it never leaves us, but it simply is concealed by the passions, therefore when we sin, we fall and when we struggle and repent, we are raised up again. Christ will be for the fall and rising of many. Also in the next life, since all will see Christ, but for some it will be paradise, and for others, hell. 13. This last clearly reveals that the feast of the meeting of Christ is not simply a feast referring only to Christ the Lord, and pointing to one of the stages of the divine economy, but it is also a feast of the person who lives by Christ. The church made the feast of Christ's 40th day also a ceremony, a service for the 40th day after everyone's birth. On the 40th day after birth, the infant is offered to the temple by its mother. This offering has a double meaning. First, the mother is blessed for the end of her purification after the bleeding of her confinement. Just as the church prays for every illness, so also it prays for the woman who has given birth and naturally feels tired and physically weak. It prays for her purification. And because, as we know today, the manner of our birth came after the fall. Secondly, it is a celebration of thanksgiving for the birth of a child. Since the conception and birth of a human being is not a work of nature alone, but of God's energy, we feel that it belongs to God. So we offer it to God, and he, through our priest, gives it over to us again to bring it up. But in reality, it belongs to God. However, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, we must offer to God, to the altar above, in place of a pair of turtle doves, the purity of soul and body. And in place of the two young pigeons, we must offer much prayer, not only before the face of God, but also before the face of mankind. And just as Christ did all that the law required and returned to his fatherland, filled and advancing in wisdom, so we too are to return to our true fatherland, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, because we are to live spiritually according to divine law and advance in wisdom and joy and reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, perfected in the inner man and having become dwellings of the Holy Spirit. According to St. Athanasius, the great it is our task to liken ourselves to righteous Simeon and the prophetess Anna. We too must meet Christ with wisdom, purity, guilelessness, forgiveness, and in general, with love for God and mankind. No one can meet Christ, the true life, in any other way.
the meeting of Christ shows that Christ is the life and light of men and that man should aim to attain this personal light and personal life. The church sings by way of exhortation, Illuminate my soul in the light of my senses that I may see thee in purity and I will proclaim that thou art God. In order for anyone to proclaim God, he must see him clearly. Only those who see God, or at least accept the experience of those who see, can become teachers. But in order to see God, one must previously be illuminated, shine in soul and body, bodily senses. Then the feast of the meeting of Christ in the temple also becomes a feast of the meeting of every believer. Amen.